0: Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep intellectual dive into the academic research and behavioral science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behavior. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World. If you haven't already, sign up to my website at katypatrick.com to get more free resources about how you can use gamification and behavior design to get your community to zero emissions and make it fun, like a game. Hey there, world changers. We have a treat today having our special guest being Dan White on the show. Dan is the CEO and founder of Filament Games. He's an artist and an entrepreneur, and he is one of the most gifted game designers on the planet when it comes to making games that are created to make a positive impact on the planet. And he is probably the world's most prolific games for impact developer. Dan and his team at Filament have created loads of educational games, but there are nine games specifically that stand out about the environment. These games are Otter Planet, Equation, Climate Champions, Citizen Science, Land Grab, Eco Kingdoms, Resilient Planet, Eco Defenders, and Energy City. Oh my god, just reading them out, I am already jealous. And all the links are in the show notes if you want to try them out. Dan and I will be talking about the nuance of how to create a game that engages, educates and transforms people. Game design is an art, and so is the design of action and impact and education. This conversation is all about exploring what happens when we put them all together, and especially the pursuit of mastery, which is an extraordinarily powerful force in humans. Mastery is a really big deal in game design, but it's hardly ever talked about in the world of climate and sustainability. Dan is one of my favorite people. He's a fan of the book, How to Save the World, and he also has a rare gem of that kind of intelligence that spans art, engineering, making things, design thinking, and of course, caring for our beautiful Earth. And if we want to get a whole lot better at saving the planet a whole lot faster, these are the things that we need to bring together. In this conversation, we'll be weaving all these things together along with some great tips and insights about how you can make these type of game mechanics work for you. And if you want to take a deep dive into how to apply all of the game mechanics and the behavioral psychology research into an action design framework, please sign up to my Gamify the Planet monthly masterclass. It's on Patreon. It's $25 a month, and you'll be able to access all of my videos and recordings about how to go through my signature behavior mapping process, where we start off with the God metric, our environmental metric that we really want to change, and then go through who is the target audience, how. How are we measuring progress and systematically look at 96 different psychology, behavior, and game design techniques that have been proven to get people to take action this is the system i use to design anything from complex bits of software to small campaigns this is the system that i go through and if you learn how to do it properly it will completely revolutionize and transform your environmental and climate work it's called gamify the planet link is below now let's jump into the episode with the ceo and founder of the wonderful filament games dan white Welcome to the show Dan.
1: Thank you, great to be here.
0: Can you tell us a bit about your career journey and what got you interested in games but specifically games for impact?
1: Sure, well apropos to the theme of this particular podcast I was actually at Crossroads at a a pivotal moment in my early career where I was either going to go into educational games or into renewable energy because I was super excited about both and both were burgeoning frontier spaces. And I had a very difficult time making the decision, but ultimately obviously decided to go toward learning games. And that started with quite a ways before founding filament started with just a general interest in a belief in the power of the medium of games to do more than just entertain, basically. Not not even necessarily to have a, a positive impact in specific, but just to do more than entertain. And out of that grew an interest in the idea of utilizing video games as a tool for learning, just because I love personally learning stuff. I have a voracious appetite for learning new things. And so many of the experiences that I had in life as a learner as a lifelong learner were things that involved getting my hands on and experiencing them firsthand so that experiential learning aspect it occurred to me that a lot of those experiences could essentially be replicated through the technology of video games so i went to do a master's degree in education technology at the university of wisconsin madison and was just over the moon fortunate to study under some of the seminal researchers in the learning game space, James Paul G, Constance Steinkler, Kurt Squire, Rich Halverson, folks of that nature. And there was this critical mass of people at the University of Wisconsin-Madison at the time, faculty, who were writing about learning games. And I wanted to put some of that rhetoric into practice, so I ended up being more of like a project-oriented master's student as opposed to a research-oriented master's student. And out of that first project, which was a game about ocean science, where you play the role of a scientist on an alien planet, trying to understand how the ecosystem works so that you can determine what the environmental impact of a crashed fertilizer carrying spaceship would be. We got the first funding for the company in order to officially found the company. So it was very so our roots were as an organization very much in the environmental gaming space, if you want to call it that with that first project that ended up being a project that we did with National Geographic around ocean science.
0: Wow, so your kind of like primary primary place that you were coming from was from really started environmentally rather than started with games. So have you done anything with renewable energy like in your own house or your own community or work? Yeah, have you got any solar panels the electric yeah. car like that going on, Rewired. Yeah,
1: tragically, I've been trying to put solar panels on my house for years. And every company I have come out and quote it keeps telling me that I don't get enough sun because of some big, gorgeous t- trees that block all of my light and I'm not willing to cut down. So instead, I just keep it freezing cold in my house, as you can tell from my layers of, of winter clothing here. So that's, that's one thing uh, my partners and I also share a communal space at a country home about an hour away from Madison and that's all decked out with solar panels. Our energy bill last month was I think ten dollars because everything else was fueled by the solar panels. And we have I'm a big fan of all the tools. So we have you know electric mower, electric chainsaw, et cetera, et cetera. And it's so cool to be able to to power all those things off of the sun. Besides that, I just I'm a, I'm a bus, bike, walker kind of guy. Madison's a really friendly town for that. We have a good metro system. We ha- It's an isthmus, so that helps with, with the metro layout. And then we have a really good bike trail network. And I also live pretty close to downtown, so most of the places that I want to buy groceries or hardware stores, things of that nature I don't have to go more than a mile to get 90% of the things that I need. And I'm also a backyard gardener, so I try to grow as much food as I possibly can, as close as I possibly can. The stuff that I can't grow in my backyard, I get from a co-op up the street that sources most of the produce locally here in Wisconsin. I'm a Wisconsin transplant, but this is a great place to be for eating local and eating organic.
0: Well, that's cool that you've been able to put at least some of it, some of it into practice in the real, in the real hardware. <clears throat> Cause I think it's easy when you do a lot of content or game design or experience design to end up in the world of just kind of like content and theory and not so much in the real practical world, of putting it in. I'm secretly jealous of all the people who do real energy efficiency work, crawling through buildings and stuff. Cause I mm. feel like I'm always leaning too much into the creative and, and the theoretical world. But I wanted to ask you to just dive in and extract some of your wisdom about how to actually put these games and these experiences together. Can you go over the design framework or process that you go through when you have like a new concept and a new client and it's totally fresh and new? What system do you go through to build the concept out?
1: Sure. It's a little bit different from one project to the next, but... In broad strokes, we always begin with a set of learning objectives. So what are the things that we want to teach? What's the impact that we want to have? How do we want the user to be impacted by this game experience? And then we design out essentially a set of hypotheses about how a set of game mechanics could have that impact. And then how will we test that on the other side to see whether or not it is actually having that impact. So once we have the broad strokes, learning objectives, and a set of game mechanics that we think could teach those things. Then we essentially start prototyping. We do concept work and create out a, you know, flesh out a design document and things like that. This is all kind of discovery phase stuff where we try to get a rough sense of what it is we're going to build without committing too many lines of code or creating too many final art assets before we're really sure that we're headed in the right direction. And then from there, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward process of going to an alpha beta, and then finally a gold through the process of two week sprints, where in each sprint we set out. A number, an objective in terms of the mechanics that we want to develop in that sprint, and then how we want to test those mechanics on the other side. And then with game development in general, but I think in particular for impact oriented games. There's always pivots along the way as you learn more about how well those mechanics work in practice. And that's because I think compared to other genres of gameplay, we're not able to draw as much from convention or precedent. You know, if you're making a first person shooter, there are hundreds and hundreds of first person shooters that you're going to be drawing inspiration from, and you're probably not going to reinvent the formula, probably going to make some tweaks. Whereas with impact games, oftentimes, we draw inspiration from many, many different genres at once or no genre, <laughs> we invent something totally new and quirky and go off the reservation.
0: I think it's it's really interesting, you know, you bring up this idea of this hypothesis and this evidence and this testing. And I find that well, what I find is really missing from the impact space largely, I wouldn't say it's completely missing, but I think it's it's quite weak in a lot of our design thinking, is this idea of causality that we actually know what the hypothesis is we're testing. And then what the causal mechanism is for testing that. And I talk about causality a lot and bringing causality and creativity together, which I feel like sounds like mumbo jumbo, like for most people when I when I first say it. But I think you would understand what I'm saying. You'll have this hypothesis that we expect this thing to happen. If people see this particular thing, then they'll do that action or they'll learn this thing. And there's a few different ways we can go about that. And then when you figure out what that causal mechanism is, like it could be comparison or it could be journey or it could be some social identity or whatever it is once you know what it is, like right from its theoretical skeleton, then you can apply like a creative layer over the top. Then you can make it fun, make it colorful, make cool characters. But it's based on this core mechanism that you know what works.
1: I have, I'm I'm of two minds with that. I think one is, I mean, based, based on what I said before and our methodology, I think it's the best way to go about making games for impact. On the other hand, there is, What I'll describe as maybe a cautionary perspective, which is that I think when we make games for educational impact in specific, there can sometimes be an obsession with the idea that something needs to have evidence-based positive impact before it can be considered of value. And we hold games to perhaps an unfair standard compared to other more accepted, more traditional media like say books for example nobody really asks all that much whether or not books work but obviously we use them day in and day out and have for centuries whereas when something's new there's this kind of question of whether or not like whether or not you can prove that it works and i think one of the cool things about games but also one of the things that makes them maddeningly difficult to answer the question can you prove that it works is that they are experiences games are video games are experience engines. It's not flat content with flat content. I can communicate that content, whether it's through a video or a passage of text or a picture, and I can ask you to recite it back to me. And if you can recite it back to me, whether that's through a multiple choice test or just verbally, then I have evidence that you have internalized that flat content, having people, Pair it back concepts or experience based knowledge, you know, cognition that is embedded inherently in the performance of a concept or a skill or a task is much less straightforward, right? So if somebody were to design a video game to teach me to be a better entrepreneur, If I were to say, I'm not going to use that video game until you can prove to me that it's going to make me a better entrepreneur. Okay, well then that game developer is burdened with the task of proving that their video game has had a positive impact on your entrepreneurship abilities, which then by logical extension means that you have to figure out how you measure what it means to be a better or worse entrepreneur. And of course, we all know that being a good entrepreneur doesn't boil down to a list of simple do this, do that, if then kind of skills, right? There's a lot of nuance to it. There's a lot of intuition to it. There's a lot of, it's very dynamic. It's a very dynamic content space. So I think we should always be pushing to have more evidence-based game design while at the same time offering ourselves some grace in terms of the acceptance of video games as a technology for positive impact which is to say that we should use them without holding them to a standard that we that we don't hold other forms of media to, just because they are teaching things that are inherently complex and thus inherently difficult to measure.
0: Mm, mm. And also the, the lens that I come through, which is a much more kind of simple form of, although I don't call myself a game designer, it's really looking at I call it action design. My job is perhaps, say, if you and I were working on the same project, my job would be how do I get people to put their banana peel in the compost? I'm very Mm -hmm. much focused on the real-world action and kind of a drawing from game design, whereas you might create a game that teaches people all about what compost is and what it's about. And these are still both really important parts. And so what I was thinking about as you were talking was that We need to encourage intrinsic motivation in people. There's kind of like action design stuff, like getting people to put a smiley face when they do something like every day and using colors and feedback loops and that kind of in the real world stuff. It works much better on people that have high levels of intrinsic motivation. All of this behavior design works kind of on everybody, whether you're into environmental stuff or not. But the people that are really, really high, they have high levels of education, high levels of knowledge, high levels of emotional motivation. They're very, very easy to to get to to do the action it'll be very very sticky on them so if you're just totally just coming through an action design lens or being too reductive in this evidence based approach perhaps you might be losing a little bit of the nuance of how we encourage this inner emotional and psychic garden in people that makes them attuned to these behaviors and and all these things are long term you can't necessarily put in a box someone's entire childhood and adolescence and how they came to becoming a really self-aware, impactful person that they might've gone on to study environmental engineering or environmental science or gone into renewable energy. has been at least a decade of ambient input into someone's psyche that's made them pre to be a pro-environmental person. And also there's, there's a little bit of a funnel, you know, kind of like a sales funnel or a behavior funnel with this stuff. And if you're putting people through the funnel, I think a lot of people mix up where their experience or their idea or their game or whatever it is they do, where it fits on the funnel. And I see the funnel as having three phases. You've got the one that attracts attention. So the game might be something that really just attracts attention to the cause. Like it could be something very simple, it could be something that's very fancy, like some augmented reality experience, something that's out publicly something that's just very fun and very novel to attract attention, but its job isn't to actually create the behavior. It's Mm -hmm. just there to attract the attention. Or it could be some of like a deeper emotional relationship building. Like if somebody is playing the game about compost, they're having this emotional sticky experience. And then what we actually want the person to do at the end, which is to buy the product or change the behavior, that's a different realm. That's what I would do. That, okay, we've basically grabbed their attention. We've created this deep level of engagement. Now we want to have the action to happen. And you kind of have to be measuring it for different things along different stages of this, of this funnel.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And I think there's, particularly when you're talking about longitudinal change, as opposed to something short term, it's really important that the player or the whoever you're trying to impact is engaging and then re-engaging. We see this in, for example, professional development with educators. There's a lot of evidence at this point that one-off professional development doesn't stick. It doesn't have a lasting impact. You need to be re-engaging with the educators throughout the semester and ideally throughout the year. And that's one of the things that I, again, think is, is great about games. I can't tell you how many deeply moving and impactful documentary films that I've watched that got me fired up about a particular subject matter for some relatively short period of time before it faded beyond the periphery of my temporal sphere of awareness. Right. Whereas games can engage, get you fired up, and then it give you reason to come back and re-engage over and over and over again across a long period of time. And as we know with the formation of any kind of habit or the formation or change in behavior, those things are really driven by, by practice essentially. And and that the, the brain is wired to, the brain needs to rewire itself before those things will really stick. And the way that that rewiring happens is through continual longitudinal engagement and practice. So that, that's one area where I think games can really shine in that respect.
0: I never thought about it that way, is that often these experiences are, are batch things. It's like COP27, it's a batch, it's a conference, you know, it's a documentary, it's a singular thing, rather than really looking at what is a system any kind of system or any kind of creation that's going to keep people engaged over the long term. I mean, laws, policy, buildings, architecture, I mean, everything happens over a long time. So if it's just going to be like a one-off batch process, it's only going to have that short-term impact.
1: Yeah. Um, No, 100%. I mean, the, the best, I feel like the most salient analogy that everybody can relate to is the idea of friendship. If you have somebody you know, maybe you you met somebody, you had an amazing experience, you exchange numbers, you're like, I want this person to be my new best friend. And then, you know, a couple of weeks pass and that connection fades and you don't feel that same, you don't have the same feelings. Whereas if you say share a hobby with that person, you see them every other Tuesday to play tennis or whatever. And you have that ongoing connection and reinforcement of that relationship. Now that friendship can develop into something that will last the test of time. And that just seems to, whether you're talking about social engagement or something educational or something behavior change oriented or something habit oriented, it just seems like as, as animals, you know, we, (laughs) we really need to do, we need to have reasons outside of ourselves to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again across a long period of time before it's actually going to become a meaningful part of our lives. And that's, I feel like anytime you're talking about impact, if something doesn't become a meaningful part of the person's life, if it's an ad hoc one-off intervention, then you're just not going to get the, the impact that is ultimately desired because most of the time, real change requires long-term to itness, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. It just reminded me of this one phrase I've been putting out into my trainings more, which is build a movement, not a product, because people come to me all the time with their idea. They're like, I'm trying to make a game. I'm trying to make a startup, or I've got this physical product, or I'm putting on this. And they're so caught up in the idea or the product, whether it's a digital thing or like a physical product or a campaign or whatever, and that it's this finite thing they're trying to release into the world. And I tell them, like, it doesn't matter what your idea is. For a start, you haven't built it yet, so it could change. And you really want to build a movement of people. You don't even need a product to build a movement. You know, you can get people together. You can get people taking action. You can just do it with Zoom and with Slack or with Discord and just have a vision. And once you've got a group of people together with a, a vision that is flying with that, they're identifying with this, this mission, I mean, you can put any product in that. It can be anything at all, but it's really taking this long-term community building perspective on what you're trying to make. That's more about the movement of the people than it is about the actual widget or thing or game you know, that you put out into the world.
1: Totally agree, yeah.
0: I wrote down a bunch of game mechanics that I wanted to ask you what you thought was the thing that you really want to get right. Mm. But then I thought, What's the really thing that you want to avoid, like the big mistake? I'll (laughs) run through them. I don't think it's a comprehensive list because like I said, I have more of a behavior than a game designer. But the first one is story, like the hero's journey, the story arc Mm -hmm. of the game. What's the thing that you really want to let people know? If there's one thing you want to get right, what is it? And the one mistake that you want to not do.
1: In developing a story. See, that's a tricky one because we actually don't do a lot of narrative based game development. It's actually more the exception than the rule. But if we were to do a heavily narrative driven game experience, I think the one thing that you want to get right is the ending. You want to stick the ending. <laughs> That's the part that will stick with people. And for whatever, this is how we're trained, right? Through contemporary media, we're trained to place all of our eggs in the ending basket people who religiously watch certain shows on tv might watch them for four five six seasons dedicating hundreds of their hours of their lives to it and if they don't nail the ending then they walk away with a sour slash bitter taste in their mouth
0: that's the one i was going to mention <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly exactly like game of thrones and yeah. you see this in games too one of the most one of the example that comes to mind is uh, there's a sci-fi space game series that was heavily narratively driven RPG that had, I think there were up to maybe three or four instantiations of the game. So by this point, players have invested hundreds of hours and then, and then it's almost like every hour that was invested makes the person that much saltier when when they don't like how the, how the experience concludes. So that's what I would make sure you get right in terms of and then what's the other side things to not do things to avoid yeah i
0: mean it could be just the same kind of thing but um but sometimes it's different like the thing that that you want to get right and the thing you want to avoid are not necessarily the same thing
1: i think the thing to avoid for for narrative is being too self-indulgent i think there's a lot of people who write narrative or write dialogue to to build out narrative that spend a lot of time on Building out things that ultimately aren't serving the narrative in any kind of really important or meaningful way. If somebody's going to tell me a story, I want them to hit the important beats, and I want everything. I don't want a bunch of you know proverbial side quests, if you will. I I just I don't want to. I don't want a bunch of forced character development dialogue. I don't want a bunch of just kind of filler. Basically, I feel like the best stories get in and then they they deliver they deliver those great story beats and then they and then they get out.
0: Mm. Okay, what about novelty? Novelty gets used a lot in uh, neuroscience and behavioral psychology. It's a big part of game design too to keep people's attention. What's the most important thing to get right with this dimension?
1: With novelty. <clears throat> mm. So novelty is I think an incredibly powerful game mechanic in general, and is what, interestingly, I think a lot of people seek when they play games because they're, by virtue of the fact that they're playing a game, they're seeking out an experience that they probably can't really have easily in the real world or maybe at all. But on the other hand, people also want things that feel familiar. There's a great TED talk on this, To I think it's called How to Sell Anything. And the basic premise is that people crave novelty, but at the same time, Ironically, we crave familiarity. And so some of the most successful games or books or movies are things that offer something a little bit new, but in a kind of a familiar context or a familiar package. I would say the thing to not do with novelty is to overdo it, right? Because people do still have that interest in connecting with something that feels familiar or nostalgic in some way. The thing to do with novelty is, yeah, 100%. I, I think including being very intentional about designing novelty in, into your experience is absolutely essential, particularly coming from the perspective of the game industry at large and somebody who advocates for the game industry to grow and mature. I mean, this is easy for me to say because I'm not a game publisher putting, you know, tens of millions of dollars on the line to develop a new AAA title that is not based on an existing franchise or an existing set of game mechanics that have proven successful like a Call of Duty. But our space is just, our industry is in desperate need of, of people having the courage to, to try new things and to, and to build novelty into their games, both in terms of game mechanics, so games that aren't just about violence, for example, or in terms of topics and themes, games that explore things other than conflict or battle, you know, et cetera, et cetera.
0: We're talking about novelty in fairly abstract, can you be a bit more specific by what you think when you're looking at like, okay, how do I perhaps turn up the volume on the novelty of this concept? What would you be looking to do?
1: Well, basically, I'm thinking of it as a game mechanic that asks me to do something that I haven't done previously in a game. So a good example of this is the game Papers, Please. This is a game where you are playing as somebody who's checking passports at an immigration checkpoint. I I don't know that I necessarily wanna do that for fun, but I love that this game exists. And I love that there's a game that asks people to do that for fun, or maybe fun's the wrong word, that asks people to do that as as a meaningful experience. I'd like to see more games that ask people to do things that they're not used to doing in games in the pursuit of meaning.
0: Because when I asked you the question, I was totally not thinking it like that at all. When I think of novelty, I think completely visually. I'm like mm. a color that's novel, like a little sparkly thing that's novel, like something bounces in a novel way. Also with a lot of sustainability stuff, I think we are painfully bad at novelty it stuff still is looking like corporate documents and everything's green and brown and it's got a picture mm. of a tree and it's an earth. And I'm just like make a little pink monster that jumps around. that has three eyes. Like it doesn't <laughs> all be, you know, trees <laughs> and I like trees and lakes, but it kind of starts to all look like that.
1: You know, that's a great point. I mean, vi- in terms of visual novelty, it's, it's something that, I mean, as a cautionary tale, we recently released this game RoboCo, which is a pretty hardcore engineering slash robotics experience at its core, if you really want to get into it, you can make a non-slip differential gear setup if you want to, or you can just make a silly robot that can deliver a sandwich. But the aesthetics, the aesthetic treatment of the game is very fun and playful and silly and almost kind of youthful. And it's, its affect. I think the the visual novelty kind of belies the depth, yeah, the, the depth of the engineering experience under the surface. And I think for a lot of people, that is a surprise. For some of them, I think it's a good surprise. For some of them, it's not a good surprise. So people are trained to read the book by its cover. And I think when whenever we're designing games or any any media, we have to make a very conscious decision about whether or not we want to do something novel, understanding that the inherent risk is that we're going to delight some people and other people are going to find themselves having an experience or, or in a genre that they they want nothing to do with.
0: <laughs> right, right. But I've never thought of novelty and branching in terms of like a novel function and visually paired off that it can be in these different different realms. Another thing that I think is really interesting is levels. And like level design is a super common everyday part of what you do as a game designer. But when I'm in my world as a behavior designer, the idea that you would design for environmental behaviors at people's different levels. For example, if you've got a group of vegans, you are gonna be designing something very different for them than if you've got people who are in the half and half meat vegetarian or the people that just hate vegetarians, hate vegetables. That you've got people at different levels and they're perhaps at their different levels of skills of where they're at with their environmental behaviors, their consciousness, their engagement. And that's an extremely novel way to approach it. It's not in the zeitgeist of climate action design thinking to, to bring that in. So what can you share with us about when you're looking into level design and how to design levels that you think we can draw from when we're trying to get people to do stuff in the real world?
1: Now, this is another one of those things that we should semantically clear up. So do you mean levels in terms of the player's level of experience or do you mean levels almost like chapters of a book, like levels that have different gameplay mechanics or levels that increase in complexity over the course of a game experience or levels that just explore different themes is another way to think about it.
0: I was just thinking of it in terms of as you just move through something, you start at level one and then you move to level two and you just progress as you go. You don't give people everything at once. You know, everybody starts at level one and then they have to go up from there.
1: Yeah. Okay. Got it. Because there's, in one sense, you can think of the purpose of leveling as a scaffolding progression, right? So it's designed to make it so that the player has a, as smooth as possible on-ramp into learning your game and how to be good at your game and how to succeed at your game. The other way you can think of it is it's just a going back to the novelty thing. Each level is a way to change up the scenery and change up the game mechanics in such a way that keeps the player engaged because now they're doing something different that they weren't doing in the previous levels. And I think both of those ways of approaching level design have utility. And then the third, I suppose, the third way is that you chunk up the content into chapters like a book and just make it that much more digestible. You give the player logical opportunities to say, okay, maybe I'm done for now and I'll come back when I'm refreshed. There's a natural arc in the experience that has a climax and then a denouement and then maybe a pause and then they come back and do it again at a later date in a new level. I think all three of those are great reasons to divide content out. That way a lot of our games have levels in them, certainly not all of them. The downside of designing games with levels, particularly if you're on a budget, is that as soon as you have levels, there's an expectation that there would be at least so many, right? Nobody would write a two-chapter book. That would feel really weird. <laughs> so I think, yeah, the levels are levels are a terrific tool for framing the experience around for scaffolding the progression of the player, but that come with the necessary caveat that I think if you had less than like six levels in a game, that might feel weird. That feels like an arbitrary threshold, but that's, that's the number I'm picking.
0: (laughs) I've broken plenty of stuff down into just three because, you know, I'm often dealing with the simplest stuff, but that's cool. I hadn't ever thought about it before as a way of just introducing novelty to, to just change up the scenery, change up the characters and stuff. And a lot of what I've found myself doing professionally and just in my own work is teasing out these enormous amounts of environmental actions into interactive experiences that people can digest. One of the jobs I got was from the United Nations that had this 100-page PDF document with basically every single thing that you could possibly do to regenerate the planet and regenerate ecosystems. And it was everything from like eat less meat to get $5 million worth of funding and get a team of people to recreate a coral reef. Stuff that's like Super simple everyday things to really, really advance, and it was all jumbled together, like literally in the same sentences. So I just spent the time, just like copying and pasting it out, and I put it into three levels did it for them because I had to try to make something really simple and interactive, sure. and tried to like tease it out. But it was just a, a process of just trying to get these these huge amount of actions, just segmented, mm. like you said, like chapters. And it's this problem that we have so much. We're doing anything environmental, it is a lot of actions, but you can't give people lots of actions at once, like. Wear a hoodie, keep your thermostat down, grow vegetable gardens. And there's honestly like, there's hundreds. Like, where do you even start? And so, this levels as a way to kind of like break it up. But I hadn't thought of this idea of creating the change and the novelty. I was thinking about it in a way of like, let's get to five things, give people a, you know, like a thumbs up or or a check, and then give that reward system, you know, Mm -hmm. almost like showing people along a progress bar that they can at least make it through five little chunks of content or five Mm. little things that are learning and then they come to an end and then they get the like good job confetti reward system and then that's kind of like a chapter but it's a way of just tickling that reward system and that tracking of progress so it's not just like oh my god there's a heap of like hundreds of of things i just can't compute But that's something that's a bit more specific to the actions rather than the the education. But, But another one I've got here is these reward systems. What are your thoughts when you're trying to think of how to design these rewards? Rewards can be just like little animations, little good jobs, a sense of completion. What do you work with to try to make these good?
1: There's a lot of different types of rewards that we use in games. I think we try, whenever possible, we try to tie them to the game mechanics as intrinsically as possible. So the game mechanic itself is also the reward. The thing that we're asking you to do is in and of itself the reward. So for example, in Roboco, we're asking you to build a robot that can solve a challenge. And the reward is... For sure, the most gratifying reward is solving the challenge itself, having that moment where you're like, wow, I just designed, I just built a thing that can cross a gap and turn a valve. And I went through like six levels of iteration or six you know instances of iteration on this design. And the final one does it and it does it elegantly. And it works just like I had hoped. That feels amazing because the player is excited about their accomplish, intrinsically excited about their accomplishment. But of course, on top of that, we also say, good job, you unlocked some new cosmetics for your robot. Good job, you unlocked the next level. You got some bits or currency that you can spend on different things in the experience. And so we're tapping into some of those different dopamine systems, but there's no doubt about it that the satisfaction or the gratification that stems from the actual completion of the task in the game is the thing that we want to lean on the heaviest because that's the thing that's actually going to produce long-term change for that person.
0: But that's kind of in the realm of mastery when you're thinking about game design, isn't it? You're trying to encourage mastery of the topic and the intrinsic motivation of the mastery rather than somebody wants to do it because they want to get the the strawberry to bounce up and down at the that's end. Right.
1: That's right. Yep, exactly. And, and those types of those, those smaller, extrinsically motivating rewards are still nice. I think those have a place and I think that they produce produce the desired effect. It's just not as, how do I say? It doesn't last as long, right? It wears off relatively quickly versus a reward that is is tied to the player's sense of self-efficacy.
0: Hmm. Can you talk a bit more about the the intrinsic desire that we have for mastery because something that comes up a lot in the environment and climate is the general worldview that people are completely self-interested and the only way to motivate them is with money and with the law you have to make it illegal or make it cheaper and there's and oh everybody wants it to be really simple it has to be simple it has to be easy it has to be free and that's probably true for the less involved people but I find it far more fascinating and interesting to look at how enormously motivated humans can be to do really complex stuff that they don't have to do, like chess grand championships, like the lady. There's all these people that go off Niagara Falls in a barrel. Mm -hmm. And there's this one woman that did it in the 1800s and she survived, like breaking the four-minute mile, like the guy, Felix, who jumped out of the spaceship and he parachuted to Earth. All over the world, people are pursuing their mastery of doing something that's never been done before, of unraveling some complex puzzle. And I think that's a far more interesting and powerful thing to try to tap into than this idea that we're all just kind of like like animals on a farm and, you know, you've just got to put the food over there and then all the animals will walk this way. It might be true for maybe for some of the population, obviously, that's happening, but what are your thoughts on this, this powerful capacity for this obsession with mastery that humans have in us and how we can tap into that, you know, with games?
1: Yeah, I do think it's universal. I think everybody has the capacity to derive deep pleasure and satisfaction from mastering something and in particular mastering something that is challenging. If it's not challenging, I would say the level of satisfaction and pleasure oftentimes is directly is one-to-one with how challenging it is to master the thing. What I think is hard, well, hard's an understatement. What is extremely elusive is how you get somebody to care about the thing you want them to master, as opposed to the thing that they've already kind of organically decided on their own that they want to master. The the cool thing about the list that you just put forward is that, you know, all of those things are wildly different pursuits. And, you know, what is it, what is it about one brain that really wants to jump out of a plane in space, in parachute to the ground versus another brain that wants to explore something previously unexplored versus another one that wants to, you know, dive to the deepest depth and see how long they can hold their breath or, or learn a new instrument or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. Once somebody has committed to the idea of mastering something, then we can create games that keep them engaged longer than perhaps they would be on their own. But creating a game that can take somebody from having no interest in mastering something to having interest in a mastery in something, now that's the, that's the golden ticket right there, right? And I know that we can do that. We certainly have done that. We've created games that I think have successfully done that for people. I've had that same experience playing video games myself, but I don't know what the formula is. And if anybody were ever able to figure you know, the reliable formula to, to take Somebody who has no interest in X and then on the other side of that experience, they're deeply passionate about becoming a master of X. I I don't know how to make that a formula, but I do know that games can help.
0: Well, I suppose writing my book and recently I've put my book into this little, I've actually got it right here. This little behavior card kit. Can you see it? Has it come up on my zoom background? Mm -hmm. I put all the game and behavior design techniques in this little card kit trying to put it in a box the best I can, that people can try to solve that. But I think all of us who are really deeply into sustainability, I mean, that's our quest. I mean, we kind of say it's for the earth, but I feel like personally, like I'm so far beyond it being about the planet for me, mm-hmm. an obsession with mastery. How do I turn hundred people who don't really care into these like, like rabid environmental enthusiasts? You know, I get to practice <laughs> these things on people and be like, like, hey, do you know that you're doing 20% worse than your neighbors? And just watch their result. They're like, oh my God. And just looking at all the little interactions that people have. Like one guy, I, I tested out an app I made. He puts his fist in the air and he was like, like he was so upset that he was low on the leaderboard and this like, this feeling of rage and competition. And he wasn't really trying to be funny. He really meant it. He was like, oh, like, like <laughs> I at getting my carbon emissions down. But we're all in the game of mastering this earth-centric way of life. All of us who do it professionally, we do it in our private private lives. And I don't hear about it, talked about it that way. Like how do you complete a completely zero emissions house or a zero emissions community? or get my house to be zero waste to live, you know, without any plastic. All the people that are really diehard don't ever use plastic. Have you ever done it before where you don't use any packaging, nothing in a can, nothing plastic?
1: Like like I said, with the documentary, I remember watching a YouTube video about somebody who went zero waste for some period of time. It was really inspiring. I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to do that. And, and then, you know, I did it for a month and then life happened. And so there was that gravitational pull back to the norm.
0: It's a particularly hard one to do because the world is really, really not built for it. But I think the, the pursuit of, say, zero waste living, which is probably one of the hardest things to do, I think if you see that through the lens of mastery and if that's something you're trying to promote with people, talking about it, designing it, just looking at everything that you do in that space through mastery, it's like a really, really different lens to promote it and to think about it than like a fish in the ocean have plastic in them. Okay. I know fish in the ocean have plastic in them, but I'm not personally littering. It doesn't, I don't know. I think it kind of wears off the environmental lens the environmental call to action wears off. And the self mastery I think is just, just personally, I sense that it's far more powerful.
1: Oh yeah. 100%. I mean that, again, that concept of self-efficacy, I think is just super, super powerful because it feels really good. That's like the ultimate dopamine hit is to be like, yeah. I'm capable and I set my mind to do a thing and it was hard and then I did it anyway. Feels just absolutely incredible. But I think with a lot of these, whether you're trying to reduce your waste or reduce your CO2 footprint or whatever it is. I again come back to this idea of habits because I think that's where the rubber really meets the road. It's not particularly difficult to get psyched up on something and do it for a short period of time before you abandon ship. But to have something become a new permanent way of life is a really big deal. And and that's where, at least in my experience, the purpose of The type of work that we do, I think, is to prime the pump and get somebody to the mental place they need to be at in order to be ready to commit to some long-term behavior change like that. And of course, it can play a role in helping actually create the behavior change in and of itself as well. But it's hard to say which one is more important and maybe they're equally important but i think games can play a role in both the mindset shift or priming the pump or getting the person passionate about an idea or excited about an idea or ready to learn more or ready to pursue mastery and they can also be the rungs of the ladder that help that person get from the ground to a point of mastery and i suppose the best combination would be the one to two punch of both I, I don't know that i've seen very many instances of games that try to do both but It seems like both are necessary in order for that change to be longitudinal.
0: I think it's really, really exciting to think about the game design context and the pursuit of trying to almost like it's like an Easter egg inside someone that you can crack open that obsession with that mastery over a thing and thinking like, can I hatch that open with someone? Not like, how can I enable people to be more lazy and care less through making it so easy. No one has to care. I mean, hopefully we get to that eventually, but... I find that a deep kind of soul-driven, salivating passion to open up in people is yeah. the most, the most exciting. I did this little diagram about a year ago that was like a staircase. The more experts I talk to in this space, people that do, you know, their PhDs in the social science of change, and, and then there's people like you who are designing these interactive experiences. It's kind of like staircase the first one is attitude you need to get people to just have a pro-environmental attitude before any behavior comes or before anything else happens people are psychologically primed and that word that you use to prime i mean that's also a word that's used in the psychological literature which is like priming Mm -hmm. you know prime Mm -hmm. people so when they have the opportunity to take the action they're ready to go and so there's a huge investment in getting people psychologically to have a high pro-environmental attitude and most people actually do have a reasonably high one and then you can move into behavior like is that actually then going into your behavior and these first two steps it kind of feels like that's where the kind of industry kind of stops here's the education here's the behavior but then I saw all these other rungs on that I'm like well the next one is kind of like social influence like you're getting your friends and family involved you're reaching out you're starting to become an entrepreneur maybe you want to start a business And then there's a level of mastery. Do you actually really try to master something like green walls? Do you spend 30 years trying to re-engineer green walls to be able to work on 30-story high buildings and figure out the watering systems? All of the environmental stuff that we see today is built upon the backbone of people spending decades obsessively mastering whatever it is they do, if it's how to, I don't know, keep solar panels clean because they get they get dirty on roofs all these different types of green infrastructure that you can put on buildings just even like drainage systems so you don't need to use concrete you can use natural stuff mm-hmm. there's just every single environmental product out there has had this really deep obsessive investment of someone trying to master this new kind of product so that's your next stage and then You've got the stage where you're really actively trying to influence the system. You've mastered something. Well, okay, well, we need to get a law change. We need to change the government. We need to get extra funding for this. you are really trying to change policy and having that spread through people. So if we're all just capping off at the educational awareness stage, we're not realising that humans have all these other almost like is transcendental, but no, transcendent. Transcendent mm. is the word I mean. All these other levels in them for social influence and for mastery and for taking not just a year, but like a decade after decade worth of mastery into this. And I think that just that game lens can help us ask the question of how do we patch this open in people?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's, that's so true. As I, as I'm listening to you speak there, I'm just thinking about the point at which the fall off curve as people are progressing through that journey if you just take a random population of people and where the tipping point is like if we could just get most people across this line we'd move the needle because we don't need everybody to end up being the next green entrepreneur right but we need some so like if we take a population of a million people how many people do we need to get to this point how many people do we need to get to this point that would be really interesting to know because that's a design objective that i feel like you could build a game toward right if you if you knew that it's a very different game to get somebody jazzed up about and teach them to be the next green entrepreneur versus to get them to remember to compost or something or turn their lights off right
0: yeah. Yeah. So we kind of need to have different products for these different people as to where they are along, along the stage. Like I did a podcast interview a couple of weeks ago about a woman who was studying the amount of self-efficacy people have to influence the people around them. And she was founding that people's sense of self-efficacy, not to do the environmental thing. They're like, yeah, I have really high self-efficacy. I can plant the tree and do the compost and do all this. But what about your self-efficacy to go and get 10 people, you know, to do it? That's mm. a really different thing. And that requires yes. a lot of extroversion. It requires a lot of emotional intelligence. It requires a lot of confidence. It just requires a sense of gumption that I can go and ask some real person I know to do something and maybe they'll say no and then I'll feel really awkward. Really dealing with a totally different realm. But yet that ability for people to go out and talk to people around them is the most powerful way that things change. It is how people change. Mm. So it just really showed that making things or making products or campaigns or messages for people at the different levels of where they're at. We don't want to be using top 10 green tips for people that are already really deeply green. It's silly. But people that are already deeply green, trying to get them to increase their confidence and their sense of emotional support that they can go out and have those 10 awkward conversations with people to see if they want to get solar as well. That's something we're not doing, like dividing it up for those different sections of people of where they're at along the bell curve. And for those deep green people, that 1% of people that are already there trying to encourage them to really step into their mastery. That's a tool for that particular market. And- I know
1: that This is game specific, but I, I think early on with the environmental movement, a lot of it was about information. So we want people mm-hmm. to be informed and then they will take action. And then after that it's kind of like, okay, well, beyond information, we need to give people the tools to actually know how to be effective proponents of whatever environmental change that they want to see. But almost, I feel like the third phase is customization. It's almost like customizing the impactful action that best aligns with whatever else in life is important to you right now as a human being. So g- case in point, because I just went through this for the beginning of 2023 where Apropos of the conversation we had before the recording, is this question of simplicity and the value of the pursuit of simplicity in one's life? And as I analyzed the structure of my life going into 2023, I decided that I wanted to simplify some things. And then dovetailing with that was this idea that one way that I can simplify is I can buy less stuff, I can refrain from hitting the buy now button on Amazon. And I can establish a set of parameters around when I will allow myself to buy something that are far stricter than they have been in the past, which I think is, is, is an aspirational change that I think a lot of people attempt to make. But if they're just trying to do it for the environmental impact and there's no connection to something that something has value directly into their life, in my case, it was the pursuit of a more simple life, then then it's I think, that much more difficult to get traction. So I wish there was some way that we could, when we were designing games for environmental impact, that we could, and maybe we could, is like assess where the player is at, the the player in air quotes here, in terms of what else they're trying to accomplish in their life, independent of their green aspirations. And then almost matchmaking, like, oh, okay, you're trying to, you really care about X right now? Well, here's an environmental agenda that dovetails really nicely with the direction that you're already trying to head be so interesting to see and i don't know that's so much a game anymore so much as an enormous data analysis project or like a database that connects people with the right action for where they're at in their life but that's kind of what what that made me think of
0: there's a whole body of research about having one action trigger another that the way you know you form new habits is by piggybacking them on other other things although that's probably not exactly what you were saying but yeah i mean there's a there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done in tailoring these things for different different groups right it's not unrealistic or unviable your track of thinking that you know if somebody is really into health and they're like well what i'm really focusing on is health right now but that then takes them to something that's far more about eating and gardening and
1: yes Yes.
0: eating and that thing and if somebody is interested in cleaning and home design and home management i've also been on the home management thing the marie kondo book like you were mentioning Uh, yeah and it's so much about zero waste and not being overly doing too much consumption marie kondo is like the ultimate environmentalist Mm -hmm. idea of living with less and she brings a much a a deeper like a spiritual dimension into it that you should have this joyful spiritual deep connection and appreciation and gratitude with all of the items and when we're just buying stuff and using too much stuff. We lose that sense of gratitude and appreciation. Exactly. So there's, this, there's all these higher order philosophies and dimensions that kind of come along with that stuff. But anyway, sticking on track, not going too much on the octopus tentacle of tangents, the you know, <laughs> you're tailoring the user experience for what people, people are into. And if somebody's like really into their kids, they've got small children and they're all about kids, right. then it's more about children's education. The huge failure of, of that to happen, like everything yeah. is one size fits all. You look at pg es energy saving stuff, like all the messages from the city, from the green groups, right. it's all one size fits all. And then right. you've got the extreme environmentalists complaining about the disaster of the top green tips, like how it's watering down the movement and the how, how, how dare you have meat free Monday. It's just enabling this. And then the other people saying on the other end, like, oh it's way too hard. It's overwhelming. I just shut it out. Getting a sense of tailoring experiences for people is really what we need to get better at.
1: And as I think about it, I have designed kind of a game around my I've designed a game system around this objective of buying less stuff. And I think I don't maybe normal people don't do that. <laughs> but as I think about I do. It, I've designed
0: is... two, actually. <laughs> but yeah. I never made them. I've designed them, but
1: And I think that structure, that system, even though it's not something that I've written down and put onto, and certainly not into digital format or even onto onto the format of a board game or anything like that, I think that structure is a big part of what helps me get to those dopamine moments where I feel a sense of empowerment and feel a sense of self-efficacy. I'm just imagining what it would be like to live in a world where you could have a game that after it identified the things that you're already intrinsically motivated by, that it could create a game structure in order to tap into that motivation and turn it into a set of behaviors that stand the test of time or that have a positive impact. Because that's where I think without those game structures, my this resolution that is now granted We're one month in, right? So we'll see, check back in in six months. But I I can feel that my momentum is increasing, whereas I think it's around this time that the typical New Year's resolution is starting to at least plateau, if not wane a little bit. And I think it's really because of that game structure that it is very much waxing. And I think there's something to that.
0: Wait, this game structure that you created just for yourself? Mm -hmm. What is it? What is the same structure you created for yourself?
1: Well, so there's rules, first of all, right? There's a rubric that I use to evaluate the prospect of a purchase. There are, there's no extrinsic reward, but there are, there are rewards built into the moments where I succeed at being mindful or identifying a, that I would normally make as a knee-jerk reaction, but instead either don't make or file into a system that pushes it out or aligns it with some other objective. And then there are like regular check-in points. There are points where I formally sit down, I look at my performance and I feel a sense of either excitement or disappointment in myself based on the results. And so far it's been this positive feedback loop where each time I sit down, I find that I've done better than I was even planning, which motivates me even more to do better to do even more the next time so there's very much this virtual cycle i think at play with with the structure
0: and is it just like something you made up or did you write it down is it just oh, it's just made up in your mind it's, it's only it's all, mind? it's
1: all tacit yeah
0: yeah but this simple little basically like a system of rules right that you've created mm-hmm. for yourself just in mm-hmm. your mind
1: yeah i mean ridiculous. in terms
0: of like you know trying to make deliverable stuff that people can do i mean you could put that in an instagram post like that's how rapidly deliverable it could be if you wanted to put that out and teach people. If you can practice it in your own mind, you don't need to have a $2 million budget and like 10 amazing programmers and artists to bring it to fruition. Once you get a sense of what those rules are, you can put it together and you can even use really simple softwares. Like I've been, people had to use this one called ConvertFlow. It's basically just for making sales funnel. It's a little drag mm-hmm. and drop editor and you can make quizzes mm-hmm. and stuff. But okay. you can put little tiny very simple little interactive widgets inside a website where you could teach this and make it almost a game without it having to be this big elaborate thing.
1: And then the really the fundamental crux of the game mechanic at its core is the satisfaction of not having more stuff, which ties into that value of simplicity. And so if you take away that value of simplicity and all you feel is the absence of the stuff that you wanted to buy I'm not sure it would work so -hmm. that's the question is that what how do you how would you make it a a one-size-fits-all or maybe more to the point can you make it a one-size-fits-all or do do you really have to design custom systems and reward systems in particular to tailor to What's important to the individual player like you mentioned that one person competition was obviously a deep value of his when he saw his stats compared to other people that was highly motivating for him. I would suspect there's a there's a whole psychological category of people for whom that mechanic is highly effective of many others who it would probably bounce harmlessly off of. I think what I'm realizing through this whole conversation is, yeah, in a perfect world, we would have thousands of game designers designing (laughs) highly custom mechanics to different psychological profiles.
0: Yeah, but that sounds like a crazy kind of feature creep disaster. I think if you pull the scope in of the game massively, that it's Mm -hmm. like the scope is your game is like like an Instagram carousel. That's how simple it has to be. You've got to teach it. And you bring the scope in, then you can have that kind of tailoring. But I see what you mean. Like it has to be around a core value system. Yes. You know, once yes. you've got that core value system, and somebody's also committed to that value system, there's also that sense of commitment to that goal. Like a goal and a value can almost put them together. But then yeah. you can actually have product or whatever it is be something very simple. That it could even be like a piece of paper. I commit to blah 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 blah, and then you write it down, and that's your game. You right. know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have any special moments or memories when something really, really worked on people or kids and you saw the impact happen that you cherish?
1: Oh, yeah. So the game that I mentioned that I worked on for my master's thesis, which eventually became our first project with the Jason project which was a middle school science curriculum organization. It's called Resilient Planet. That was the name of the curriculum and the game ended up being called Resilient Planet as well, even though it was essentially a game about ocean science. And in the game, we ask you to take on the role of a researcher and you're trying to answer a question about population dynamics in the ocean. And we give you the same tools that the real researchers use, and we created a simulated environment and asked you to go out and use those tools in order to collect data and make scientific arguments. And when we tested the game in the classroom, I distinctly remember this one student looking at his score in the game, and in his mind, his score was a proxy for how good of an ocean scientist he was, which is so funny to think that in the span of you know 20 minutes 30 minutes of gameplay that somebody can start to form the identity of an ocean scientist and have that, that speaking of self-efficacy have that sense of self-efficacy from the game whereas prior to that experience i'm sure that person you know 13 year old didn't walk around thinking of himself on the spectrum of not ocean scientist to 100 ocean scientist material then he turned to his classmate and he said that based on his, like he was doing really well at the game and he didn't even originally think of himself as somebody who cared about ocean science. So he was in the same breath saying that this experience had not only made him think of himself as somebody who could do ocean science, but also that, that prior to the experience, this was just like a, a completely, maybe something that he would have related with people that he saw on television or things that felt like very distant or removed or abstract or things that he probably frankly just never even considered within in the realm of possibility and to have that sort of mindset transformation to not only like oh okay I, I think I have a sense of how I would do this if I were to do it but also I have natural aptitude and affinity here and just like get to check both of those boxes in the span of a classroom That was the moment where I was really hooked on the idea of learning games for impact because I've just never seen any other technology do that. Now, did that student go on to become an ocean scientist? It doesn't really matter. From my perspective, what mattered was that we had created a technology that in a very short span of time could get somebody to have a complete shift in paradigm from average middle school student in in Iowa to possible future ocean scientist. And that's a really big deal.
0: And how old was this boy?
1: I think around 12 or 13 in middle school. Okay.
0: Okay. And was he an outlier? Were the other kids a bit like that as well? Or was he totally different to the others?
1: No, no. I mean, not an outlier at all. Nobody who participated in that particular play test came into the experience in the context of None of these people had self-identified as people who are interested in ocean science or science in general, or the ocean in general. They're all people being introduced to these career paths and these practices, these professional practices for the very first time at the outset of the experience. So from that perspective, a very, yeah, just a very virgin audience to this subject area. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges with Games for impact, or really anything oriented toward impact. It's like, how do you take somebody from off the street who doesn't have knowledge about something, or affinity about something towards something, or a value system around something, or a sense of self efficacy around something, and how do you efficiently instill that through one experience? And that's essentially the process that we, we took that group of kids through that day and consistently saw levels of engagement did vary from one student to the next. But I would say we definitely had the majority, something like 80 plus percent of the class walking away from the experience, having put on the lens of ocean science and having viewed the world through that lens, realizing that, A, it was a maybe an interesting practice that they hadn't thought about previously but b that it was something that they were actually fully capable of doing should they decide to pursue it at some point in their lives or something similar for that matter
0: so you kind of cracked the code on how to hatch open that intrinsic motivation and passion for the subject through this first game experiment that you that you ran
1: that's certainly what it felt like to me
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah well what I'm really getting out of this conversation is this is a constant divide between education design or what I I'm or constantly working to articulate the difference between what is education design and what is action design that they, they're both so different and yeah. what I've really gotten out of this conversation is just how powerful games and when you can really drive into the complexity the creativity the story and especially this mastery you're you're hatching open, you're encouraging this intrinsic motivation, that intrinsic power inside people. That then when they go out into the world, they'll do stuff. But we don't necessarily design the game to get people to put the thing in the right bin. We design okay. to really create this inner transformation, like you just shared what happened with these kids playing this, playing this ocean scientist game.
1: That's exactly right. And and you never know what is going to trigger that. That's aha moment, right? I mean, that's that's what we call the company filament. It's now a little bit an- anachronistic, but the filament inside of the light bulb, the light bulb being the iconic representation of that aha moment where you have a paradigm shift or you take on a new perspective or you get excited about something that you didn't previously care about, right? Those transformational shifts are the ingredients of impact from my perspective with each individual person you, you never know what collection of ingredients is going to produce the ultimate desired behavior but i feel like what's so rewarding about the craft of impact game design is that we're constantly working to try to create more ingredients for more people and sometimes you know i feel like we have win scenarios like i described sometimes It feels like it doesn't doesn't work very well. And there's a lot of instances that are somewhere in between, but I feel like it's the good fight. It's a proverbial good fight, right? It's like the pursuit of knowledge about how you deliver experiences to people that transform them towards some positive direction. That's just incredibly fulfilling. And I feel like there are many lifetimes of of learning to be done in terms of how to master that and perfect it. Yeah, it
0: feels like we're only just scratching the surface in this space. And final question, what are you specifically most interested in exploring in these games for impact in the in the next 10 years? Do you have a well, little chestnut of one thing that you really want to your own mastery that you really want to crack? <laughs>
1: and this this one's pretty easy for me right now because i'm so steeped in the in the space of robotics which i know isn't directly related to environmental impact but i would say tangentially just because i feel like solving big hairy environmental issues is partially about social movements and about political movements and about changing policy and changing behavior. But there is also the prospect of technological solutions as well. And that's where I think STEM and robotics in particular really plays in heavily. But the reason why I'm personally so jazzed up about robotics education right now besides the fact that it's kind of this STEM superfood, when I say STEM, I mean science, technology, engineering, and math, is is just that as I look at the future landscape of a big challenging problems for humanity to solve, be really interesting, meaningful, rewarding career paths, and see things that games can do a uniquely amazing job at, teaching that other media are really not up to robotics just like checks all all of those boxes and even if we get somebody excited about robotics and they don't actually become a roboticist or a stem professional the types of thinking that you do in robotics is highly transferable to all sorts of other really important problem solving disciplines, which let's face it at the end of the day, most of us, when we leave school, become professional problem solvers. We just solve all sorts of different shapes and sizes of problems. And so I think that mindset is a really good one to indoctrinate people into. So yeah, that's what this work that we're doing on RoboCo, which is a game to teach robotics where you're building robots to solve problems is uh, the thing that I I can see myself sinking. We've been working on it for five years and I can definitely see myself putting another five years uh, into into this space because I think if we get more people excited about robotics, I think we really will have a significant positive impact both on those people and on on the world in general.
0: Yeah, and it's true. You need to be able to do complex problem solving to solve any of these problems. And there is not one single environmental issue that isn't, largely technical it's social and political as well but they all have a technical basis just to be able to exercise that part of your brain that can actually like problem solve which not everybody can do right some people are good at following instructions but they're not great at problem solving something that hasn't been done before
1: but school doesn't prepare us well to think about completely open-ended problem spaces either problem spaces where there are literally infinite viable solutions some obviously more elegant than others it's usually there are four options and one of them is right, right? <laughs> and so and that
0: is where the divergent octopus brain finds its true genius. You can get into a problem and you're like this, this, that, 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 and that. Really exactly. finds its genius, trying to work in a focused way towards a goal. Not always. You know, yeah. <laughs> we were just talking about this about the tendency to constantly diverge with new with new yes, ideas. Way to bring it um,
1: forward,
0: <laughs> problem solving. Well, this was awesome, Dan. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. You have such a wealth of experience and insight into this craft that you have about games, games through impact. And there's definitely a lot of interest there in the climate and environmental space to get better at games and the word gamification that no one in the game, the game industry likes, but climate folks do tend to do tend to like it. That we can start to bring this this interaction design in to the social change movements so we can actually get the kind of traction that we want to see so thanks so much for joining is there anything you wanted to add before we go about where, any projects that you want to promote ways people can follow you they can follow filament games anything like that
1: yeah so filament games our website filamentgames.com. roboco is roboco.co please always encourage people to to follow us on instagram youtube facebook all the different social medias we're there you can find us tiktok we're we're on the mall and we'd love to love to connect with you
0: thank you so much for listening to another episode of the how to save the world podcast it's an incredible journey to understand all of this academic research and be able to share it with this incredibly nurturing and loving community I am thrilled to have the How to Save the World podcast partnered with some of my favorite groups in environmental design and technology. Our first partner is a group called Earth Hacks. Earth Hacks runs environmental hackathons about once a month, where they gather all sorts of technology folk, computer programmers, GIS people, designers, engineers, and just about anybody to get together for a weekend hackathon and dive into these fascinating environmental technology problems. I definitely support getting involved in Earth Hacks. If you're into technology or computers or data and the planet in any way, you will love Earth Hacks. And you can sign up and join their hackathons at earthhacks.io. Our second partner is a group called Climate Designers, run by my friends Mark and Sarah. And Climate Designers is a group bringing together all types of designers from all disciplines of design and asking the question, how can we use design to help solve climate change? There's pulled together an amazing group of people from around the world and they hold events and a podcast and they run a community on the platform Mightyworks and you can sign up and join their group at climatedesigners.org. And our third partner is a really cool group called Conservation X. Conservation X runs all types of innovation challenges and partnerships to try and invent and come up with new ways of, of cutting edge technology to help with the conservation movement's greatest problems. And Conservation X, has really come out of this small-scale DIY hacker put-it-together-yourself space with conservation and it encourages people to start building their own technology and you should jump onto their website at conservationxlabs.com to check out their current programs and they also have a podcast that you can check out called Explore. The links to sign up to these really cool partner groups are in the show notes below. Thank you for listening thank you for your support and thank you to our amazing guests who have joined us on the show and of course for your interest in the amazing world of environmental psychology now let's get out there and make saving the world the greatest game we've ever played